trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, hello there and welcome to the show. You probably heard some rumors that this is the kind of place where people gather to revel in wrong think. And you know what? The rumors are absolutely true, so I don't know why I would try to hide from it. Pun intended. I'm glad you could join us today. Our program is made possible by great sponsors like lifesavingfood.com, monticellocollege.org, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, hslammo.com, sewingquiltingcenter.com, and governyourincome.com. Got a link for them in the show notes at the Brian Hyde Show. Dot com. You knew that was coming. So why would we need to engage in wrong think? Okay, this, this could just be a matter of, well, because you guys are a bunch of crybabies who can't handle the truth. You're no truth handler. And uh, therefore, you know, you're just getting together to, uh, to throw a tantrum about uh, things you don't agree with. Now, the sad thing is that that may be a possibility, but I don't think it's true. I don't believe that to be the truth. I think the problem that we have today is there is so much information coming at us 24-7 from all different angles and so many voices out there. How do you know who to trust? Well, here's the one distinction that's going to make this show a little bit different or at least makes this program somewhat separate from other programs, and that is there is no implied kind of demand here that you have to agree with what I say. If you disagree, if this information doesn't ring true to you, I'm not going to say, well, that's because you're stupid or that's because you're evil or that's, you know, you're just, you're just caught up in, in something partisan. If it's not your truth, that's, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be offended if you reject it. On the other hand, where do you find those trusted voices? I do my best to be a trusted voice, but more importantly, I try to point my listeners to voices that can be trusted to tell the truth, especially during times of crisis. Not because, you know, they have all the answers, but just to help my listeners think more clearly and independently. And I think if we can agree that, okay, trusted voices are, you know, few and far between these days, but we need them more than ever, you know, I'm trying to do my part can't guarantee with 100% accuracy that everything that you hear is is going to be, you know, absolutely, you know, the the truth written in stone. But I do my best to to vet the information and to to get people who actually make a lot of sense. It's funny too. I I've got a good friend who refers to me as the voice of reason. He's done this for years. And it's it's tongue in cheek. He's joking around. But at the same time, you know, I feel like there's I I have a certain duty to be a voice of reason where I can. And when it comes to voices of reason, particularly over uh, things regarding COVID, I'll tell you, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya has been one of the voices of reason that I've turned to many times in the last year or so. And Dr. Bhattacharya recently had an article published in the, uh, on the Brownstone Institute's website. That's uh, brownstone.org. Listen to this headline. We cannot stop the spread of COVID, but we can end the pandemic. Now, before I share his article with you, I want to 
just make it very clear that uh, it's it's Dr. Bhattacharya is one of three leading epidemiologists who came forward and was uh, one of the signatories, original signatories of the uh, Great Barrington Declaration. And this is something that uh, that didn't come out, you know, looking for power. Give the power to us, you know, make give us the the power to make all the decisions in this country or around the world about what should be done uh, in in response to the pandemic. But the three primary doctors who helped to construct and who helped write the Great Barrington Declaration definitely are challenging and have been challenging the ways that uh, public health authorities, among others, have been uh, going after, you know, the, the way to approach COVID, the lockdowns and so forth. I think they've raised some very good questions. I think that they are very reasonable in the way they approach this, but... As you're going to hear in today's show, they have uh, scared the the pants off of uh, some of the establishment types who have very actively sought ways to shut them down. And when I say establishment types, I'm talking the Dr. Fauci's. I'm talking the Dr. Deborah Birx's, the Francis Collins, you know, the director of the National Institute of Health. Oh, sure, he's got that kindly Ned Flanders persona, but as you're going to hear in today's show... Behind that facade of ding-dang-diddly just trying to keep you healthy, uh, it's it's actually some pretty power-hungry folks. So here's what Dr. Jay Bhattacharya says about we can stop the spread, we cannot stop the spread of COVID, but we can certainly end the pandemic. Dr. Bhattacharya says the arrival of the Omicron variant has led some politicians and public health grandees to call for a return to business closures and circuit breaker lockdowns. Now, the variant's been found worldwide, including in the U.S. and the U.K. The variant already has surpassed Delta, dominant before Omicron, in the U.K. He says early reports from South Africa confirm that the variant is more transmissible, but produces a milder disease with a lower chance of hospitalization and death upon infection. So he says, my message is this. We can't stop the spread of COVID, but we can end the pandemic. He says, in October of 2020, I wrote the Great Barrington Declaration along with Professor Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University and Professor Martin Koldorf of Harvard University. The centerpiece of the declaration is a call for increased or increased focused protection of the vulnerable older population, the ones who are more than a thousand times more likely to die from COVID infection than the young. And he says we can protect the vulnerable without harming the rest of the population. Now, this is the part that uh, that I know the narrative managers are going to struggle with. Dr. Bhattacharya says, as I stated above, we do not have any technology that can stop viral spread. While excellent vaccines protect the vaccinated versus hospitalization or death if infected, they provide only temporary and marginal protection versus infection and disease transmission after the second dose. Same is likely true for bite, for booster shots, which use the very same technology as the initial doses. So what about lockdowns? Bhattacharya says it's now abundantly clear they have failed to contain the virus while wreaking enormous collateral damage worldwide. And the simplistic allure of lockdowns is that we can break the chain of viral transmission simply by staying apart. Well, only the laptop class, in other words, those who can just as easily work from home as in the office, 
can abide by a lockdown in actual practice. But even they have trouble. Essential workers who keep society going cannot afford that luxury. So the disease will keep spreading. Will the same policies that failed against a more virulent strain succeed in containing a more transmissible strain? The answer is self-evidently no. The harms of lockdown on children and the non-elderly are catastrophic, including worse physical and mental health and irretrievably lost life opportunities. He says lockdowns imposed in rich countries mean starvation, poverty, and death for the residents of poor countries. But there is, however, a good alternative to lockdown. The Great Barrington Declaration calls for a return to normal life for low-risk children and non-elderly adults. The principles at the heart of the Great Barrington Declaration are as important today as they were a year ago. In fact, he says they're more important now because we now have technological tools that make focused protection of the vulnerable much more straightforward than it was a year ago. First and most importantly, the vaccine. Because unvaccinated older people face such a high risk for a poor outcome on infection, and because the vaccine is so effective at blunting severe disease and and death, vaccinating older people is the top priority if life-saving is to be the top priority. However, the vast majority of unvaccinated older people live in poor countries. Now, at current rates, the worldwide vaccination campaign will not be complete until the end of 2022. In other words, too late to save countless vulnerable people. Prioritizing those who have never previously had COVID will help preserve doses for those who would benefit most. Since, like the vaccine, COVID recovery provides excellent protection against future severe disease. Booster shots for older people, for example, make sense. But to preserve doses, they should be reserved for those who have not previously had COVID and who were vaccinated more than six to eight months ago. He says, according to a careful study conducted by Swedish scientists, vaccine efficacy versus severe disease also starts to wane around that point. So boosting before then doesn't provide a substantial benefit. Now, I got to tap the brakes here because we are coming up fast on our commercial break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. Again, I'll have more to share from Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from the Brownstone Institute. This is really good stuff. And there's a link in the show notes in case this hits the right nerve and you find out you want to share it with some friends. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Going to get back to this excellent article by Dr. Jay Bhattacharya in just a few moments. Let me take a second here to thank my great sponsors, including lifesavingfood.com. You might be pressed for time to give uh, the gift of food storage for Christmas, but hey, it's a gift you can give yourself, and the sooner you do it, the better. Look, the, the writing is on the wall. I talked with uh, Kendall uh, Whiting just a couple of days ago about, uh, about what's happening with food prices and food storage prices, like everything else. Those prices are steadily going up. In fact, you're going to see a, a, a jump after the first of the year. Now, that's not to tell you, therefore, buy right this second or, you know, your money's going to be worthless. 
it's just keep in mind that the prices will not be better than they are today. So if, if it's something that feels like a priority, you know, you can, you can go ahead and spend that money with confidence, knowing that uh, you know, you're going to have the food you need and that you got it at the best price that you could. I mean, I wish inflation were not a thing, but it is, and we can talk about that another time. In the meantime, please click on the link, which I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Go to lifesavingfood.com and just decide for yourself, is this something we could use? If the answer is yes, use my coupon code name HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. You'll get a 10% discount, no sales tax, and free delivery. Okay, back to this article from Dr. Jay Bhattacharya who says we cannot stop the spread of COVID. We just don't have the technology to stop it from spreading, but we can end the pandemic. And first and foremost, he says, vaccines actually do make sense for people who are in the risky categories, the high-risk categories. Booster shots for older people, for instance, also make sense. But he says this should be reserved for people who haven't previously had COVID. See, he's one of these heretics who actually talks about natural immunity because it is a thing. Unfortunately, the official narrative, for some reason, does not include any consideration of natural immunity. But for those who haven't previously had COVID and were vaccinated six to eight months ago, you know, it's, it's a good idea for, the, for those who are in the high-risk categories to get vaccinated, he says. Second, He says we should make available effective early treatment options. If you remember back during Florida's summer wave, Governor Ron DeSantis promoted the use of monoclonal antibodies. That's an FDA-approved treatment by patients early in the course of the disease, an action which, by the way, saved many lives. Safe and inexpensive supplements like vitamin D have been shown effective. Promising new treatments from Pfizer and a new antibody treatment for the immunocompromised by AstraZeneca promise to become more widely available. But until that happens, they should be preserved for use by the most vulnerable when sick. Third, he says the widespread ability of inexpensive, privately conducted rapid antigen tests in the UK has empowered everyone to make wise choices that reduce the risk of infecting vulnerable people. So far, the FDA says that these tests work to detect Omicron. Now, even if you have no COVID-like symptoms, these tests accurately read whether you harbor the virus and pose a risk of of spreading it to close contacts. So what that means is with this test in hand, anyone can check if it's safe to visit grandma before heading over to her care home. It's a perfect tool for focused protection of the vulnerable, which has been the goal of the Great Barrington Declaration from the very start. U.S. COVID policy, he says, should focus on making these tests cheaper and more widely available, like they are in the U.K. And finally, he says, since the virus very often spreads via aerosolization events, upgrades to ventilation systems in public spaces will reduce the risk of older people participating in everyday social life outside the home. Jay Bhattacharya says it's no accident that COVID disease spread is so rare on airplanes since they're all outfitted with excellent air filtration systems. Upgrading other public facilities such as public transportation systems would reduce the risk of infection for the vulnerable. Now he says there are some hopeful signs that the political and ideological winds are shifting while other developments signal a return to failed strategies. 
Colorado's Democrat Governor Jared Polis recently declared that the widespread availability of vaccines spells the end of the medical emergency. And he's resisting calls to impose new statewide mask mandates. But on the coasts in California and New York, elected officials are renewing mask requirements for all, regardless of health or vaccination status. So his point here is that the end of the pandemic is primarily a social and political decision. By the way, I do agree with him on that. And I think one of the reasons that we will never see this crisis end is because it's largely a political decision. Those in power benefit from that crisis. They're not going to turn loose of this, you know, willingly. I just wish more people understood that uh, the, the crisis ends when the people say, okay, we've had enough. We decide to live with it. And this is what Dr. Bhattacharya is saying. Since we have no technology to eradicate the virus, we must learn to live with it. And the fear-based lockdown policies of the past two years are no template, template rather, for a healthy society. So the good news is, with the new and effective technologies available and the focused protection ideas outlined in the Great Barrington Declaration, we can end the pandemic if only we can muster the courage and political will to do so. Now keep in mind, in Sweden and many U.S. states that have issued lockdowns, the pandemic is effectively over, even as the virus continues to circulate. As normal society resumes, he says, the vast majority will find that living with the virus is not so hard after all. Again, this is uh, Dr. Uh, J. Bhattacharya. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford University. I mean, I want to believe it, right? Just because I don't really want to go back into lockdown. But I would contrast his approach... Do you see anywhere in there where he's he's saying the vaccine will turn you into a 5G receptor and mind control? No, he's not caught up in any conspiracy theory. He's not sensationalizing. That is how a voice of reason wields influence within his sphere. And as you're going to hear in the show, that voice of reason has been targeted by the regime and by its uh, its media sycophants and by those bureaucrats within the in the the regime to try to point paint him as some kind of a, a you know fringe uh, figure who's out there just making waves for the sake of being radical well I'll let you make that decision for yourself but as I as I look through uh, Bhattacharya's <clears throat> commentary, I don't see anything in there that, that sounds the least bit unreasonable. Now, that doesn't mean people wouldn't disagree. They very well might. That's life. But something I would ask you to consider. Notice how his, uh, his recommendations do not rest upon the premise that they have to be imposed upon people. The government or the state needs to impose these on people. They've got to be put on us by force. There's no coercion in what he's suggesting. So it seems to me that we're dealing with a viewpoint that's actually consistent with freedom. As opposed to vigorously, you know, running headlong into it and saying you can't have freedom because uh, we're all scared. And therefore you have to do what I say. To me, that's what makes Jay Bhattacharya, among others, you know, the other signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration, a voice of reason worth considering. 
Again, there's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com if you would like to subscribe to my show notes. I would be flattered, first of all. It's uh, no charge. Don't charge you a dime. I will not uh, give your email information out either. But you can mash the subscribe button, and uh, I will be happy to drop a copy of my show notes into your email inbox every single morning that I do this program. Happy to do it. It's my job. And besides, the links that are contained in those show notes are the uh, way to get to the bottom of a lot of the great issues that we talk about as well. So, on that note, we'll take a very quick commercial break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hopefully haven't scared you too much yet. If I've scared you off, I'm sorry. But, you know, I, every day I walk that fine line of uh, I want my audience to be well-informed. I want them to feel inspired on some things, too. So it's not always bad news. But, man, there's there's a lot of tough facts that need to be faced right now. And our situation, um, I don't know how to say it nicely, so I'll just say it bluntly. Our situation isn't getting better. From a political standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, things are weird. They're they're unstable, and and frankly, a little bit scary. I feel it too, and I'm I'm not going to you know try to pretend otherwise. No, nah, everything's great. As you know, the house is burning down around me. But above all, no matter how scary things get, I think you and I have a duty to do our best to understand what's really going on around us, even though that may mean some extra work, you know, for us to, to vet the information, to, to become our own fact checkers, if you will. And that's what I'm trying to do each day as I do this program. Hopefully we can have some fun along the way. Hopefully this, uh, this isn't, you know, just, you know, you're tuning in to get your daily panic supplement. I prefer to think of what we're doing here as administering a reality supplement but you get to choose whether or not uh, this reality supplement actually applies to you or not. Got a meme here that I'm actually sharing in today's show notes, and that's this is one of the added bonuses. I always try to find some, some nice, edgy meme that teaches truth but also is relevant to the discussion at hand. This one uh, has a picture of John Stossel, and it's about an article here. Facebook claims its fact-check labels are protected opinion in response to John Stossel's lawsuit. You knew he had sued Facebook over, you know, trying to uh, limit his ability to, to speak. So if they say it's protected opinion, well, that's quite a different thing from objective fact, wouldn't you say? And the rest of the meme says, so do your fact checkers actually check facts? Facebook's response is, well... Yes, but actually no. <laughs> so, okay. In other words, trust us, though. We're, we're towing the line, and that's, that's the way it ought to be. Speaking of how do, you, how do you know who to trust? How do you know, for instance, that uh, if you had any doubts that uh, whether the uh, lockdowns were politically motivated? Well, here's some documentation that you may want to consider. Got a great article here from Thomas L. Knapp explaining how Francis Collins, that's the director of the National Institutes of Health, 
His emails spotlight the bureaucracy's attempted subjugation of science and scientists. Thomas Knapp writes, On December 17th, the U.S. House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis released a series of emails between outgoing National Institute of Health Director Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. In the emails, Collins refers to the author of some, authors of something called the Great Barrington Declaration as fringe epidemiologists and states his desire for a quick and devastating published takedown of its premises. Now, Collins defended his characterization and call for action on Fox News Sunday, telling host Brett Baer that hundreds of thousands of people would have died if the declaration's recommendations, strong measures for the protection of the elderly and otherwise vulnerable, leaving the rest of us to achieve herd immunity through widespread infection, had been followed. And Thomas Knapp says, I am reminded of something William F. Buckley Jr. said about the 1964 presidential election, which U.S. Senator Barry Goldwater lost to President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Quote, they told me if I voted for Goldwater, we'd be at war in Vietnam in six months. And I did, and we were. (laughs) That's okay. Very true. Now, he says, I supported the Great Barrington Declaration, and hundreds of thousands died, but not because U.S. policymakers implemented the Declaration's recommendations, but either because of or in spite of U.S. policymakers following the recommendations of Collins, Fauci, and others. So the question isn't which set of recommendations would have produced better outcomes. It's whether science should be reduced to the status of handmade to bureaucratic diktat, with scientists whose findings don't support that diktat marginalized through the influence of those same bureaucrats. And here Thomas Knapp asks, how fringe are the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration? Well, Sunetra Gupta is a professor of theoretical epidemiology rather, at University of Oxford. She earned a bachelor's degree in biology from Princeton and a Ph.D. from Imperial College London, her doctoral thesis title, Heterogeneity and the Transmission Dynamics of Infectious Diseases. Jayanta, or Jay Bhattacharya, is a professor of medicine at Stanford University, where he's earned four degrees, including an M.D. Martin Kuldorf is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, with a Bachelor of Science from Sweden's Umea University in Mathematical Statistics and a Ph.D. from Cornell, in operations research. He sits on scientific advisory committees for U.S. Food and Drug Administration, as well as the Centers for Disease Control. Now, agree with their recommendations or not, neither their credentials nor their policy positions qualify as fringe by any reasonable definition. Their only real offense was disagreeing on what they considered relevant scientific grounds, with policies advocated by Francis Collins. Francis Collins has spoken was neither good science nor a good up or down test for determining the quality of public policy recommendations. Freedom of scientific inquiry and unconstrained public discussion of the alternatives are too important to sacrifice on the altar of technocracy. I think Thomas L. Knapp is right on it. And, you know, it it pains me to see that, uh, you know, good people who I think were, and in in the case of these signers of the Great Barrington Declaration, I think these are people who were sincerely trying to do the best they could without, uh, you know, trying to create more conflict or, or greater distortion or muddying of the waters. 
But doesn't it make you stop and wonder, why did the establishment mouthpieces like Francis Collins, like Dr. Fauci and others, why did they push back so hard? Why were they so desperate to not only say, no, 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 we don't want to do that, but to try to discredit these people? I mean, that, there's a direct quote here about fringe epidemiologists. First of all, name-calling at that level. You know, you'd think, you'd think that somebody who had that kind of depth of, of knowledge in, in a medical field would be a little more circumspect and a little less prone to, you know, junior high-style uh, name-calling. But this quick and devastating takedown that Francis Collins was calling for, I mean... I'm not going to try to read too much into those words, but a quick and devastating published takedown. Why does it need to be devastating? Because really, as I understand it, there were those who followed up and said, well, um, you know, tell us, show us the science. Show us why this is wrong. And what they got in return from uh, Dr. Fauci and from his team were simply links, hyperlinks to articles that agreed with them but uh, but no peer-reviewed scientific studies, you know, from fellow scientists. I mean, how many times have you heard the phrase, trust the science, trademarked? You know, how many times have you been told, if you don't believe in the science, you know, then you're, you know, you're some weird caveman or cavewoman out there probably washing your clothes on a rock down by the river, right? You're such a Luddite, you don't even believe the science, but science isn't supposed to be marching in lockstep. Science is supposed to be about questioning and testing and proving. So it's natural that people are going to ask questions and say, is there a better way to do this? And the funny thing is you can look back at over a hundred years of different policies and different procedures and understanding that has developed on how do you deal with a pandemic? This is one of the reasons I'm very grateful for the Brownstone Institute, particularly. Uh, Jeffrey Tucker has written extensively about how we've been through several different pandemics. Not even in the last 100 years, just even in the last 70 or 80 years. Even in the last, you know, 50 years. I guess it's been a little more than 50 years since Woodstock. Okay, I stand corrected. But did you know there was a pandemic going on? Oh, yeah, the Hong Kong flu. Why don't... why? Why didn't people go around wearing masks at that time? Something's a little bit off in the response that we're seeing today. And I think it's the politicizing of that response that is making the difference. I mean, you think about it, it's the perfect enemy. An invisible virus, nobody can be sure whether somebody else has it or not. You claim power, you claim, you know, the ability, we're going to control everything, we're going to fix it, we're going to make everybody safe. But in order to be safe, you've got to be able to show that you're on board with us. We've got to weed out the problem, children. Everybody wears a mask. You can quickly tell the ones who aren't wearing the mask, <laughs> these are the problem children. I know, it's, it probably sounds like a kooky conspiracy. Maybe it is. But it sure seems to me that uh, someone has been testing the waters to see who the truly obedient are and who the disobedient are. I'm very proud to be in that latter camp. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Hey, if you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, you know that the real estate market is white hot right now. What this means is when you find the home of your dreams, your financing has to be squared away at this moment. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. Heather can help you get the loan that you need because she has decades of experience in the lending industry. She can make it happen and happen quickly. And that works in your favor. Now, this is true, especially for anybody listening within the state of Utah. Get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage by calling 435-703-4522. I actually have a link in my show notes that will take you right to her email. If you're in St. George, go to 619 South Bluff Street. That's where her, her office is. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, whether you recognize it or not, freedom is at stake in a way that it hasn't been for some time. In fact, I feel pretty safe in saying virtually every example of conflict that you can point to, whether in our society or somewhere else in the world today, at some level, freedom is what's at stake. And I know for some people, oh, Brian, are you beating the drum on freedom again? But please keep in mind, I am beating the drum, but this isn't just a matter of we got to vote the right people into office. Because freedom is more about people who understand what their rights are and who understand what constitutes proper government. I want to introduce you to uh, Leonard Reed. Leonard Reed uh, was the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education. And I only discovered his writings within the last probably 10 years. I noticed people who were quoting them and started to read some of his writings. And my goodness, this guy contributed so much to the cause of freedom. So I want to share an essay of his, Freedom is Not Free. Mr. Reed passed away clear back, I think it was in 1983. But uh, tell me that these... these uh, principles still don't ring true. He starts with a quote from Abraham Lincoln, those who deny freedom to others deserve it not for themselves. And Leonard Reed says, only a few, the pure, the apt, and the true, never deny freedom to anyone. All others, while they may hope for freedom themselves, deny this blessing to others in countless ways, sometimes knowingly, but often in ignorance. Whoever diminishes your freedom deserves it not for himself. Thanks, Honest Abe. Now, Leonard Reed says, look, we can also thank William Harvard for his counsel. Quote, the greatest glory of a freeborn people is to transmit that freedom to their children. End quote. Never in all history were a people more blessed than being f- in being freeborn than Americans. And for at least 12 decades, they transmitted this blessing to their children. Then came the slump and for many reasons, ranging from prosperity going to their heads, thinking gone dormant, to government education. Now, Lincoln's thought reversed would read, when enough of us grant freedom to others, we shall have it for ourselves. For, as Edmund Burke wrote, depend upon it. Depend on it, rather. Lovers of freedom will be free. Leonard Reed asks, who among us who amongst us, rather, have the capability or the potentiality of advancing an understanding of freedom? And his answer is only those individuals who find the freedom cause a happy pursuit. 
St. Augustine, 16 centuries ago, wrote, Happiness consists in the attainment of our desires and in having in our having only right desires. Well, among right desires, he says, is freedom. Leonard Reed says, If we are to enjoy the blessings of freedom, there are ever so many ideas and ideals that must grace our understanding and exposition. Among these are the proper role of government and the rights of citizens. Now, according to the late Robert H. Jackson, Justice of the Supreme Court from 1941 to 1945, it is not the function of government to keep the citizen from error. It is the function of citizens to keep the government from falling into error. Man, that's a vote, or that's a quote rather that I wish was uh, being popularized everywhere. Because it perfectly describes the situation we're in today, isn't? Isn't our government trying to keep us from falling into error? It's for your own good. That's why we have to impose this. But the reason we're finding ourselves, you know, gasping under this boot on the back of our necks, is because we have failed to keep our government from falling into error. Guess it helps to know the flow of political power. Government gets its power from the people, not the other way around. Back to the article. Leonard Reed says, wrote the Roman emperor and philosopher Marcus Aurelius Antonius. Our understandings are always liable to error. Nature and certainty are very hard to come at, and infallibility is mere vanity and pretense. End quote. Now, a very large percentage of elected and appointed officials assume they are infallible, and as a consequence, attempt to protect us from our countless errors. The cost of this assumed infallibility, almost without limit, for one, inflation on the rampage. As the bard of Yvonne wrote, you take my life when you take the means by which I live. Now Leonard Reed says to the important side of this problem, Justice Robert H. Jackson pronounced a great truth. It is the function of citizens to keep the government from falling into error. How are we to cope with and overcome the vanity and pretense of nearly 16 million political office holders? They presume powers bordering on magic in the sense of producing extraordinary results. And so Leonard Reed says, to repeat what I've written numerous times before, number one, ours is not a number prob- numbers problem. Number two, it is not a selling but a learning problem. Every good movement in all history has been in response to an infinitesimal... In, let's try that again. Infinite... Inf, okay. An infinitesimal minority. Sorry, that took like three tries. One of the many examples, the very few who did the thinking, which resulted in the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Now he says, ideas cannot be sold. Neither can they be thrust into the minds of others. The correct formula becomes so excellent in explaining the freedom way of life that others will seek your tutorship. Become mentors. Excellence begets excellence in whatever the endeavor, be it cooking, science, golf, music, or whatever. All experience attests to this fact. He says the achievement of those aspirations requires extraordinary effort of a kind and quality which only those who love freedom are happy to extend. This is testimony to the fact that freedom is far from free. Such old-time phrasings as the home of the free and the land or the home of the brave and the land of the free or liberty and union now and forever one and inseparable have long since been meaningless, mere empty sounds. So he says in our time, 
we search for new ways to create or to explain freedom, rather, even though no one will ever be able to explain it fully. Try to explain creation, for instance. He says, it's impossible. Creative action at the human level borders on this difficulty. One way of phrasing will be apprehended by a few, another phrasing by a few others. Explaining liberty is indeed a task now and forever. And finally, he says, two wise thoughts, first by Felix Morley, Quote, if people do not, capac- do not possess rather the capacity to govern themselves, they are inevitably governed by others. End quote. This is an excellent and improved phrasing to describe our present political economic holocaust, great or widespread destruction. The second is by Edmund Burke, who expressed the same idea two centuries earlier. It's ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. Now, Leonard Reed says, those of intemperate minds going to socialistic extremes lack the capacity to govern themselves. The result, an unholy and tyrannical extreme governed by governments. The alternative, well, he says that's self-government, self-reliance, self-responsibility, self-consciousness. Easy? No. (laughs) But only those who move in the direction of these intellectual, moral, and spiritual goals, while happy in their pursuit, gain a profound awareness. Freedom is far from free. I don't know when he wrote this. Leonard Reed again passed away back in 1983, but uh, do you get the sense that those principles he's describing are pretty timeless? And hopefully you get an understanding. I love that he asked, you know, is this an easy thing to do? To self-govern? To be self-reliant? To, to take responsibility for yourself? To be self-conscious? The answer is no. It requires actual effort. And I'm not trying to be too self-deprecating here. It takes effort to listen to this show because you know there's going to be some bad news or there's going to be some, some hard truths to consider along with, uh, you know, whatever good news I'm sharing. I just want to assure you it's worth every drop of sweat, figurative and literal, that is part of the process of learning the principles and practices of freedom. Something to think about. You'll find a link to the article in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there. And welcome to the show. This program exists because there is a war on for your mind. And I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I'm here to encourage you. Please think as clearly and independently as you can. I actually trust you to come to the right decisions. And to that end, I try to provide you with some thought-provoking information each and every day from behind this microphone. I have links that I provide in my show notes for those who are really serious about going a little bit further, doing their own research. You know, traveling down the rabbit hole, so to speak, to find out what is really going on, what really 
matters. And I also have some great sponsors who make this possible. I got to give a quick shout out to the, to these sponsors. Um, you know, you'll notice it's been it's been quite some time. There was there was a time as as I've been you know slowly uh, growing the show and getting things uh, you know to to build to the point where it can be uh, a, an operation that operates under its own power. Um, there for a time, um, I was actually and actively asking for people if if you want to subscribe to the show, you know, five bucks a month or ten bucks, you know, and and there's a donation you know button on some of the podcast platforms that allow you to do this. You notice I haven't asked for this for a long time. And the reason for that is because these sponsors make it possible for me to do what I'm doing. And I, I feel so much better. That I, I don't feel like I'm panhandling. Like, hey, man, you got some change. <laughs> thanks, thanks. So if you have the time and the interest, I would encourage you, go to my show notes, look at the sponsor links, send them an email, do business with them if you need what they're offering, but uh, tell them thanks for helping make possible uh, me doing what I do. So I want to dive in here. Let's uh, let's talk about learning to think for yourself. First of all, you realize that that takes a conscious decision because propaganda is all around us. And some people have come to recognize once you start to see it, once it's been pointed out and you're like, oh, ah, I see that. It's hard not to see it. Now, the downside of this is it can make you a little bit cynical. I find myself falling into this trap every so often and... Uh, I I don't mean to be a cynic. I don't mean to be so jaded, but I can watch a news story or read an article, and uh, it's pretty easy to pick up on the bias. And by the way, that's true. Even for people that I agree with, it's pretty easy to see if somebody's taking a shortcut and, okay, you know, they're they're trying to uh, woo me through some kind of manipulation or shading of the facts, that gets pretty easy to spot. But it starts with learning to think for yourself. And I've got a great article here from Caitlin Johnstone, who points out that maturity is realizing that propaganda isn't something that only happens to other people. She says, I've been doing a lot of commentary on the Western propaganda campaign against China lately. So my online notifications have been full of brainwashed human livestock regurgitating all the lines they've been programmed to bleat about that nation by the very propaganda campaign I'm criticizing. And she says, what I find interesting is that it's not just coming from complete mainstream normies. A lot of the pushback I'm getting comes from people who've succeeded in seeing through other Western propaganda narratives on fronts like Russia or Syria or Julian Assange. They're just as brainwashed about China as any uncritical consumer of TV news. But because they get their information from people like Tucker Carlson and other so-called right populists who've disputed those other narratives, they assume they're safe from mass media indoctrination. And a liberal who gets their information from the New York Times will look over at Tucker Carlson viewers and tut-tut about Fox News propaganda and then go back to reading a fear-mongering article about how the Kremlin is militarizing Russian society. And both the Tucker Carlson viewer and the New York Times reader will look at nations like China and North Korea and shake their heads about how propagandized the people who live there are. She says Western mass media consumers are no less propagandized than North Koreans or any of the other nations we're told to pity because their nation indoctrinates or their government indoctrinates them with state media. In fact, she says they are arguably more propagandized, which is why Noam Chomsky said any dictator would admire the uniformity and obedience of the U.S. media. 
the way the public's manipulated into consenting to all the agendas of the powerful without their even knowing that they're being propagandized has arguably been the most astonishing feat of social engineering anywhere in the world. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says, Yesterday I was listening to a podcast by commentator Carl Ja on the mistranslations and propaganda distortion the Western media have been engaging in regarding the Chinese tennis player Peng Shui. And around the 24-minute mark, Zha began explaining, or discussing rather, a peculiar point that she says I've been noticing lately. The Chinese government is actually very bad at perception management. Now she says, I can't speak to how effective it is domestically, but when it comes to spinning controversies on the world stage, Chinese state media comes across as incredibly incompetent and ham-fisted compared to the skillful manipulations of the Western spinmeisters. In fact, she says, I'm 100% certain I could do a much better job running CGTN than its current operators if that was the sort of gig I was interested in. That's how bad it is. Now, she says, people have told me that what China's ineptness at propaganda has to do with where it has historically placed its priorities, with its cultural disdain for the use of eloquent words as a substitute for action. And with the fact that a government whose freedom used more overtly authoritarian force doesn't need as much skill at manufacturing consent because consent is just not as important. So whatever the reason, the fact that it's so far behind the West on that front shows just how sophisticated the science of modern Western propaganda has become. And that's what we're trying to deal with here, she says, as we try to figure out what's going on in our world. More than a century of progress in the science of mass-scale psychological manipulation. And she gives a good example of this. This is a, a dialogue, you know, between her and, and someone who's calling her to task. That Western narrative is false. Oh, yeah? Prove it. Well, here's a link. Ha! That outlet? You can't cite that outlet. Well, why not? Because it always disputes Western narratives. Yeah, that's why I cited it. No, you can only cite outlets that never dispute Western narratives. Kind of a catch-22, right? She says it's important to be aware of how advanced Western propaganda has become because propaganda only works if you're not aware that it's happening. As soon as you're aware that someone's trying to manipulate you, all your critical facility or faculties become engaged and all the information you're presented is intensely scrutinized at arm's length. But if you don't know you're being manipulated, it slides right past your cognitive guard dogs unchecked. Now she says a big part of coming into true maturity as an individual is understanding on a deep, visceral level that propaganda isn't something that only happens to other people. It doesn't only happen in nations we're told are backwards and totalitarian. It doesn't only happen to people on the other side of the political spectrum. She says it happens everywhere, including right where we're standing. Every issue about which public perception is of interest to the powerful is being manipulated by the powerful. Eastern and Western, left and right, mainstream media and alternative media. There's perception manipulation happening everywhere. So she says the best we can do in such situations is refine our skill set at making sense of the world by continuing to learn, by watching the patterns and noticing the plot holes and discrepancies and where they're appearing, by building up sources of information which tend to be more reliable on important issues than others, 
and by continually doing inner work on ourselves to remove the distortions in our own cognitive processes. That's the tough part, by the way. Caitlin Johnstone says, if we can manage to do that, we'll still be marinating in the propaganda narratives of the powerful all the time. But at least we'll have some idea of which way is up and we'll begin to perceive which direction humanity must begin heading if we're to become a species that's guided by the light of truth. Now, again, I've told you this before. Caitlin Johnstone and I would probably not line up on very many topics, but that last paragraph makes me think that she is, in fact, a truth seeker. And just because she and I may not line up on certain, you know, ideas or ideals, you know, here and there, I want to know more truth seekers. I want to be a truth seeker, and I want to, I want to share those ideas with them and, and hear what they have to share with me. Because I think she's motivated by the right drive. This is not about, to, well, see, I know more, so therefore I'm allowed to dominate you. She's making the same call that I am. And that is rise to your destiny of governing yourself, thinking for yourself, and recognizing the influence that you have. But it starts with claiming your mind as your own. So yeah, it's possible. I may be propagandizing you as well. But I'm leaving it up to you. The information that I share with you, what you do with it, that really is up to you. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, feel free to reject it. But never forget, it's always your choice. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Thanks once again for joining us. And please feel free to uh, go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. If you are interested in uh, subscribing to some of the different information sources that uh, I use on a daily basis, I've got them listed right there in my resources for wrong thinkers. Yeah, I know. Well, well, what need would I have to listen to your show? And, And the truth of the matter is you don't need me. You know, with the, with those resources as well as the ones you already have or others that you may yet discover, yeah, you don't need me to tell you how the cow chewed the cabbage. Like I said before, if, if you outgrow me and you are running under your own power and doing your own thing, that's kind of the goal here. So, no, I don't take it as, as uh, you know, I failed. If I do, oh, no, somebody decided they, they've outgrown me. They don't need me anymore. That's the point. I want you to be that kind of a self-starter. But there are a lot of people who are just taking those first tentative steps out of the swamp of misinformation. So I'm just trying to give them as best I can a little nudge in the right direction or at least show them where some of the trail markers are. And thank goodness for the people ahead of me who left those markers. All right. Having said that, let's dive back in here. You know, it seems like every tyrannical mandate that has been imposed around the world, at least within the last two years, has been done in the name of public health. In fact, you'll find people who will tell you with a straight face, you know, you know, public health actually, uh, it, it outweighs everything, including your rights. I saw a great quote from uh, uh, Trudeau, the, the Canadian uh, prime minister, talking about, well, you think that these rights are under attack, but in the name of public health, we can and will do these things to you. 
And I'm going to give him points for honesty, even though I totally disagree with what he's trying to justify. But you look at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, so much of the wrongs that have been imposed on us throughout the course of this pandemic have been made to stick because someone invoked public health. And you have police out there enforcing things that are not even laws. They're just directives, but they're enforced as if they were laws. That's kind of scary. Well, Frank Ferretti, writing for uh, Spiked Online, has an excellent article on the tyranny of public health and how it's being used to justify technocratic control over nearly every aspect of our lives. Frank Ferretti says, Public health dominates political discussion today. Masks, vaccines, social distancing, these are the issues about which we now argue daily. Not economics or the increasingly volatile geopolitical situation, but public health. And he says, by the way, I'm not just talking about the COVID pandemic. Indeed, virtually all aspects of social and political life today are now framed through the idiom of public health. Problems we used to treat as political and social questions are now often presented as medical issues. So critics of Prime Minister Boris Johnson simply do not question his political record. They also brand him a public health problem. As one article puts it, Boris Johnson's dwindling authority is becoming a public health issue. Likewise, Donald Trump was labeled a public health threat by his opponents while in office. Frank Ferretti says, Public health has become a principal means to attack a political opponent or a set of political ideas. In 2019, a group of medics even wrote a letter to The Guardian calling a no-deal Brexit a threat to public health. Other critics of Brexit called it a confused concept that threatens public health. And as public health has become politicized, politics has become medicalized. And this pandemic has intensified this medicalization of politics. There's now virtually nothing that cannot be conceived of as a public health issue. Take racism. Writing in The Lancet earlier this year, identitarian academic Kahinde Andrews insisted that racism is a public health crisis. In the U.S., director of the, of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Rochelle Walensky, made a similar claim earlier this year. Racism is a serious public health threat that directly affects the well-being of millions of Americans, she said. The CDC has since launched a new Racism and Health web portal. Now, all of this changes is all this changes the very meaning of racism. <clears throat> he says racial oppression used to be understood in terms of political, social, and economic domination. But now it's understood in terms of ill health. The racially oppressed are now likely to be seen as patients in need of medical intervention as they are patients of political injustice. Racism isn't just unfair, it's making us ill, complains a Guardian contributor. Likewise, anti-racist campaigners portray racism as a mental health problem. Student supporters of the Roads Must Fall movement at Oxford University have claimed that they feel traumatized by the presence of the Cecil Rhodes statue. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Frank Ferretti says increasingly the presentation of a social problem as a supposed threat to public health is a means to draw attention to it. That's why President Biden recently chose to condemn gun violence as a public health epidemic. Unable to present a critique of violence and crime in moral terms, he decided to offer one through the language of medicine. 
virtually every dimension of life has been reframed as a matter of public health. Homophobia is a health issue, argues one academic. Gambling is too. So are climate change and war. Even boredom has been categorized as a threat to public health. Now, he says the most fundamental of existential conditions are now being reduced to medical problems. Take public health advocates' focus on loneliness, which Charities Mental Health Foundation and Age Scotland call the public health challenge of our time. Now, when the very normal condition of loneliness, which millions of people face daily, is transformed into a medical condition, then something is going seriously wrong. Loneliness is a predicament that requires the engagement of friends, families, and communities, not doctors. Yet it's now being turned into a target of public health intervention. By recasting a challenge facing a community as a medical condition, public health advocates transform people into patients and dehumanize the human condition. Frank Ferretti says the public health lobby reduces complex emotional experiences to quantifiable units. And this allows public health technocrats to claim that loneliness is a comparable risk factor for early death as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And it's worse for us than well-known risk factors like obesity and physical inactivity. And in so doing, they establish loneliness as a legitimate justification for public health intervention, just like smoking or obesity. Now, he says the politicization of public health would be less of a problem if it only helped people to live healthy lives, but that's not its function. Public health is now about moral regulation, and as we've seen during the pandemic, political control. So when anything can, almost anything, can become a target for public health intervention, the very distinction between health and illness is eroded. People are encouraged to regard themselves as patients in need of medical support rather than citizens capable of overcoming any adversity they might face. Wow, does that ring true. Frank Ferretti says, look, public health used to be a sensible project. It used to be about protecting life and health. But now it has become a means to regulate people's behavior and lifestyles. And governments are now drawing on its moral authority to enforce their will on society. So in its current politicized form, the ideology and practice of public health is a direct threat to freedom and democracy. Rolling back the influence of public health on politics is one of the most important tasks facing us today. I don't know if that rings as true to you as it does to me. But I think he's got a point. And I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of how many places where this public health imperative is going to be expanded. You know, he mentioned uh, President Biden, and, and President Biden, certainly not the first. You know, there was there was talk years ago, I think it was even under Obama, that we need to empower the CDC to examine guns as a public health problem. Why? Because they can justify using emergency powers, unaccountable powers. Unelected bureaucrats can issue dictates and people have to obey them. Isn't that nice? Yeah, they're not bound by the Constitution. Really? Why? Because public health is at stake. Oh, well, let me bow and scrape and quietly back away. You just keep on oppressing because it's being done in the name of public health. This is The Brian Hyde Show. (laughs) 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I'm going to delve into a topic that is probably going to uh, sting for a few people. Because it's, it's going to be perceived by some as, well, you're disrespecting our nation's military. And I want to make very clear, I am, I am not setting out here to disrespect the military, but I, I think we need to take a good hard look at what is happening to our military. And it's not the rank-and-file soldiers. It's not the people who sign up, you know, under a voluntary decision to, to serve their country. <clears throat> they are not the origins of the problems that we're facing right now. The people who are in charge of them, the politicized generals and so forth, the ones who are uh, highly connected, you know, at the, the federal level, I think they're the ones we got to watch out for. Case in point, I was just seeing a news story, uh, I think it was yesterday, talking about uh, the, how the uh, military under the, who is the Secretary of Defense? Oh, shoot, I'm sorry, his name escapes me, but um, he, he wants to root out extremism in the military. Oh, it's, uh, Lloyd Austin, thank you. <laughs> Lloyd Austin is trying to root out extremism, and yet it's a kind of ambiguous term in the sense that uh, extremism is not super clearly defined, so really it could be in whoever we see that doesn't seem to be in lockstep. Now, why would this matter? Well, uh, you've got three former generals who actually published an op-ed, I believe it was in the Washington Post, yesterday or a couple of days ago talking about how it may be time to do a military coup in 2024 if, just for instance, I think they're using the hypothetical, let's say Trump runs again in 2024 and this time he wins, they say for the sake of the country, we would have to do a military coup. Now, forgive me if, if I'm remembering this wrong, but wasn't there serious consternation when uh, some former military uh, generals said something similar, uh, oh, I don't know, in the wake of the 2020 election? I don't know. A a military coup to me just doesn't seem like a very good thing to do. But you also have uh, these same generals urging that the U.S. military turn its focus, not outward, against uh, potential opponents like China or Russia or North Korea or Iran, but rather inward. As the president talks about, you know, the the domestic uh, extremism that threatens our democracy. Essentially, what these guys are advocating for is it's time to turn the U.S. military and its attention towards basically weeding out the people who would dare stand up for their freedom. That's a pretty heavy topic right there, right? Well, grab a chair. Let's talk about this. Andrew Basevich, writing for Tom's Dispatch has an article called How Awesome is Awesome, subtitle America's Underperforming Military. And to understand what's happening in the military, here, here's some of the background you have to know. Andrew Basevich says, Professional sports is a cutthroat business. Succeed and the people running the show reap rich rewards. Fail to meet expectations and you get handed your walking papers. American-style war in the 21st century is quite a different matter. Of course, war is not a game. The stakes on the battlefield are infinitely higher than on the playing field. When wars go wrong, we'll show them next year, just you wait, is seldom a satisfactory response. And yet, he says at least it shouldn't be. Yet somehow the American people, our political establishment, and our military have all fallen into the habit of shrugging off or simply ignoring disappointing outcomes. 
A few years ago, a serving Army officer of unusual courage published an essay in Armed Forces Journal, no less, in which he charged that a private who loses a rifle suffers far greater consequences than a general who loses a war. Now, that charge stung because it was irrefutably true then, and it remains so today. As American politics has become increasingly contentious, the range of issues on which citizens agree has narrowed to the point of invisibility. For Democrats, promoting diversity has become akin to a sacred obligation. For Republicans, the very term is synonymous with political correctness run amok. Meanwhile, GOP supporters treat the Second Amendment as if it were a text Moses carried down from Mount Sinai, while Democrats blame the so-called right to bear arms for a plague of school shootings in the country. At one point, however, an unshakable consensus prevails. The U.S. military is tops. No less august a figure than General David Petraeus described our armed forces as the best military in the world today by far. Nor in his judgment was this situation likely to change any time soon. His one-word characterization for the military establishment? Awesome. Now, the claim was anything but controversial. Indeed, Petraeus was merely echoing the views of politicians, pundits, and countless other senior officers. Praising the awesomeness of that military has become 21st century America's can't-miss applause line. Well, as it happens, though, a yawning gap looms between that military's agreed-upon reputation here and its actual performance. That the troops are dutiful, seasoned, and hardworking is indisputably so. Once upon a time, soldiering was a slang term for shirking or laziness. No longer. Today, America's troops more than earn their pay. And whether individually or collectively, they also lead the world in expenditures. Even a decade ago, it cost more than $2 million a year to keep a GI in a war zone like Afghanistan. And of course, no other military on the planet, in fact, not even the militaries of the next 11 countries combined, can match Pentagon spending from one year to the next. So is it polite or impolite, rather, he asks, than to ask if the question is getting an adequate return on its investment in military power? Andrew Basevich says, simply put, are we getting our money's worth? And what standards should we use in answering that question? Well, Lisa says, uh, let me suggest move using the military's own standard. He says, according to the United States Army's 2021 posture statement, for example... That service exists to fight and win the nation's wars. The mission of the Air Force complements the Army's to fly, fight, and win. The Navy's mission statement has three components, the first of which aligns neatly with that of the Army and the Air Force, winning wars. As for the Marine Corps, it foresees looming battles that come in many forms and occur on many fronts, each posing a critical choice to demand victory or accept defeat. No one even slightly familiar with the Marines will have any doubt on which side of that formulation the Corps situates its, its, itself. In other words, the common theme uniting these statements of institutional purpose is self-evident. The armed forces of the United States define their purpose as winning. Staving off defeat is not enough, nor is fighting to a draw, waging gallant baton-like last stands, or handing off wars in progress to pliant understudies whom American forces have tutored. Mission accomplishment necessarily entails defeating the enemy. In General Douglas MacArthur's famously succinct formulation, there is no substitute for victory. But victory, properly understood, necessarily entails more than just besting the enemy in battle. 
It requires achieving the political purposes for which the war is being fought. So when it comes to winning, both operationally and politically, how well have the U.S. armed forces performed since embarking upon the global war on terror in the autumn of 2001? In fact, do the results achieved, whether in the principal theaters of Afghanistan and Iraq or in lesser ones like Libya, Somalia, Syria, and West Africa, qualify as awesome? And if not, why not? A proposed Afghanistan war commission now approved by Congress and awaiting President Biden's signature could subject our military's self-proclaimed reputation for awesomeness to critical scrutiny. Now that assumes, however, that such a commission would forego the temptation to whitewash a conflict that even General Mark Milley, the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, acknowledged ended in a strategic failure. As a bonus, conducting the conduct of America's longest war might well serve as a proxy for assessing the military's overall performance since 9-11. Now, the commission would necessarily pursue multiple avenues of inquiry. Among them should be the oversight offered by senior civilian officials, the quality of training provided by commanders in the field, and the adequacy of the military's training, doctrine, and equipment. It should also assess the fighting spirit of the troops and the complex question of whether there ever were enough boots on the ground to accomplish the mission. And the commission would be remiss if it didn't take into account the capacity, skills, and determination of the enemy as well. But there's another matter that the commission will be obliged to address head-on, and that is the quality of American generalship throughout this longest-ever U.S. war. Unless the commission agenda includes that issue, it will fall short. The essential question is obvious. Did the three- and four-star officers who presided over the Afghanistan war in the Pentagon at U.S. Central Command and in Kabul possess the right stuff? Or rather than contributing to a favorable resolution of the war, did they themselves constitute a significant part of the problem? As you can imagine, those are not questions that the senior ranks of the officer corps are eager to pursue as those who reach the top in any hierarchical uh, position or institution, the generals and admirals are disinclined to see anything fundamentally amiss with a system that has elevated them to positions of authority. So they may have a hard time going after that question like they should. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Sharing an article here from Andrew Basevich. This was published earlier today on LewRockwell.com, one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers. And I highly recommend uh, you take a look at the article linked in the show notes. How awesome is awesome when it comes to our military? And uh, there is the, the Afghan War Commission is going to be examining some of those questions. One of the things that uh, Andrew Basevich points out here is that uh, nobody in the senior ranks of the officer corps are going to be very eager to question the system that elevated them as highly as it has. In fact, he says, from their perspective, the system works just fine and should be perpetuated. No outside tampering required. 
Much like tenured faculty at a college or university, senior officers are intent on preserving the prerogatives that they already enjoy. And as a consequence, they will unite in resisting any demands for reform that may jeopardize those very prerogatives. But he talks about the need for a necessary purge. And if you think that sounds, uh, you know, uh, that's a seditious talk, keep in mind that uh, one of the one of the blessings, if there can be found a blessing in uh, the draft of World War II, was that it brought people into the military who were there, you know, against their will, but they were drafted into service. But those people took uh, great pains to pay attention to what was going on and to fix problems. In other words, before that huge influx of people from civilian life into the military, the military was, you know, again, like he just describes here, content to keep going along. No, 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 don't, don't tinker with it. Everything's working just fine. But when their ranks swelled and people came in and went, whoa, this is, this is really bureaucratic or this is really inefficient, that's when needed reforms started taking place. They became a better fighting force because of it. So hopefully it doesn't sound like, boy, you're really tearing them down here. In this case, Andrew Basevich says, President Biden habitually concludes formal presentations by petitioning God to protect our troops. And while not doubting his sincerity and praying for divine intervention, Biden might give the Lord a hand by employing his own authority as commander in chief to set the table for a post-Afghanistan military reform effort. In that regard, a first step should be should entail removing anyone inclined to obstruct change or more likely incapable of recognizing the need to alter a system that has worked so well for them. On that score, Dwight D. Eisenhower offers Biden an example of how to proceed. When Ike became president in 1953, he was intent on implementing major changes in U.S. defense priorities. As a preliminary step, he purged the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which then included his West Point classmate, General Omar Bradley, replacing them with officers he expected to be more sympathetic to what came to be known as his new look. Now, Eisenhower badly misjudged his ability to get the Army, his own former service, to cooperate, but that's a story for another day. A similar purge is needed now, says Andrew Basevich. Commander-in-Chief Biden should remove certain active duty senior officers from their posts without further ado. General Mark Milley, the discredited chair of the Joint Chiefs, would be an obvious example. General Kenneth McKenzie, who oversaw the embarrassing conclusion of the Afghanistan war as head of Central Command, is another. Requiring both of those prominent officers to retire would signal that unsatisfactory performance does indeed have consequences. A principle from which neither the private who loses a rifle nor the four stars who lose wars should be exempt. However, when it comes to a third figure... Our political moment would create complications that didn't exist when Ike was president. When he decided which generals and admirals to fire and whom to hire in their place, Eisenhower didn't have to worry about identity politics. Top commanders were of a single skin tone in 1950s America. Today, however, any chief executive who ignores identity-related issues does so at their peril, laying themselves open to the charge of bigotry. Which brings us to the case of retired four-star General Lloyd Austin, former Iraq War and CENTCOM commander. As a freshly minted civilian, Austin presides as the first black defense secretary, a notable distinction given that senior Pentagon officials have tended to be white and male, and usually both. 
And by all reports, General Austin is an upright citizen and decent human being, but it's becoming increasingly clear that he lacks qualities the nation needs when critically examining this country's less-than-awesome military performance, which should be the order of the day. Whatever suit he may wear to the office, he remains a general, and that's the problem. Austin also lacks imagination, drive, and charisma, nor is he a creative thinker. Rather than an agent of change, he's a cheerleader for the status quo, perhaps more accurately for a status quo defined by a Pentagon budget that never stops rising. A speech Austin made earlier this month at the Reagan Library illustrates the point. While he threw the expected bouquets to the troops, praising their optimism, pragmatism, patriotism, and can-do attitude, he devoted the preponderance of his remarks to touting Pentagon plans for dealing with an increasingly assertive and autocratic China. The overarching theme of Austin's address centered on confrontation. We made the department's largest ever budget request for research, development, testing, and evaluation, he boasted, and we're investing in new capabilities that will make us more lethal from greater distances and more capable of operating stealthy and unmanned platforms and more resilient under the seas and in space and in cyberspace. Nowhere in Austin's presentation or in his undisguised eagerness for a Cold Cold War-style confrontation with China, was there any mention of the Afghanistan war, which had ended just weeks before. That uh, the less uh, and than awesome U.S. military performance there, 20 years of exertions ending in defeat, might have some relevance to any forthcoming competition with China, seemingly did not occur to the defense secretary. Austin's patently obvious eagerness to move on to put this country's disastrous forever wars in the Pentagon's rearview mirror no doubt coincides with the preferences of active-duty senior officers he presides over at the Pentagon. He clearly shares their eagerness to forget. As if to affirm that the Pentagon is done with Afghanistan once and for all, Austin soon after decided to hold no U.S. military personnel accountable for a disastrous August 29th drone strike in Kabul that killed 10 non-combatants, including seven children. In fact, since 9-11, the United States has killed thousands of civilians in several theaters of operations, with the media either in the dark or, until very recently, largely indifferent. Now, this incident, however, provoked a rare storm of attention and seemingly cried out for disciplinary action of some sort. But Secretary of Defense Austin was having none of it. As John Kirby, his press spokesman, put it, What we saw here was a breakdown in process and execution in procedural events, not the result of negligence, not the result of misconduct, not the result of poor leadership. Right. Blame the process and the procedures, but give the responsible commanders a pass. That decision describes Lloyd Austin's approach to leading the Defense Department. Whether the problem is a lack of daring or a lack of gumption, he won't be rocking any boats. Will the U.S. military under his leadership recover its long-lost awesomeness? Andrew Basevich says, my guess is no. In the meantime, does, don't expect his increasingly beleaguered boss in the White House to notice, or for that matter, to care. With a load of other problems on his desk, he's counting on the Lord to pre- prevent his generals from subjecting the troops and civilians elsewhere on the planet to further abuse. Now, again, this, the goal here is not to cast doubts and shame upon the U.S. military. I mean, there's some pretty questionable stuff that's been going on. The, the focus on wokeness, 
the focus on, well, we've got to incorporate, you know, transgenderism into our armed forces, that seems very disconnected from the, that uh, mission of to win wars, to defend our country. And I still can't shake this this observation. I've, I've had this for years, and uh, it, it started, you know, during the war on terror. But why is it? If, if the military is the only reason that we're free, and I'm, I know I'm challenging some people's belief on this, why is it that the more we have sent them abroad in search of monsters to destroy, the less freedoms we have here at home? Sorry to sound so radical, but if they were really serious about defending our freedom, they would be the ones pointing their guns at Washington, D.C. and demanding that politicians either obey or clear out. Hey, does that sound like a military coup? Okay, I'm just saying. They're, they should be defending our freedoms. But I don't get the impression that that's what's happening. And and I'll, I'll admit that drone strike in Kabul back on August 29th that killed 10 innocent people. You know, for the Pentagon to shrug and say, well, you know, it was, uh, you know, a breakdown in procedures, blah, blah, blah. Nobody is going to be held accountable. Seven children dead. But I guess, you know, if you're too big to, to fail, you know, you're too big to admit when you're wrong as well. You wonder why terrorists engage in terror against countries like the U.S.? Seven dead little children. And... And a government that shrugs its shoulders and says, eh, whoops, what can you do? That's the incubator for why people do terrorist things. This is The Brian Hyde Show.